New York, this is Democracy Now! A ceasefire now is urgently needed if we want to save whatever is left of our humanity. In fact, it is a long overdue. As the United Nations calls again for a ceasefire in Gaza, Palestinian health officials are warning thousands of women, children and sick people could soon die as Israel continues its bombardment of Gaza. We'll get the latest. We'll also look at how the police in the United States are cracking down on protests calling for a ceasefire. where police attack peaceful protesters with tear gas, pepper balls and flashbang grenades Monday as hundreds rallied against the construction of a massive $90 million police training complex known as Cop City. Well, they're throwing tear gas into the crowd. Um, they're throwing munitions. Yeah, that's tear gas. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's unceasing bombardment of the Gaza Strip has entered its seventh week, with fresh attacks on residential buildings in the Jabalia refugee camp that killed at least 18 people. On Thursday, Gaza's main telecommunications companies went out of service due to a lack of fuel for generators, plunging most of the besieged territory into another communications blackout. Israeli troops occupied the Al-Shifa hospital for a third straight day, where some 7,000 thousand trapped medical workers and patients face a worsening humanitarian crisis. An al-Shifa doctor said 43 out of 63 intensive care patients who are on ventilators have now died after supplies of oxygen and fuel ran out. A large number, they say, of premature babies have also died due to Israel's siege on the hospital. On Thursday, Israeli and Egyptian authorities allowed a handful of wounded Palestinians through the Rafah border crossing for treatment in Egypt. This is Ahmed Mazen Abu Shama, a Palestinian boy whose leg was amputated after he survived an Israeli missile strike on his family's home. People are torn into pieces, a head on one side and a leg on the other side. Entire buildings in one block are demolished by bombings. The Israeli pilot of the plane doesn't know that there are people in these buildings. They want Hamas. What do the people have to do with this? Innocent children. What do they have to do with this to be bombarded? Doesn't the pilot know that they are children? On Thursday, the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza reported it had been forced to halt services, leaving dozens of patients who urgently need surgery untreated in a reception area. This comes after Israel bombed the Jordanian field hospital in Gaza and attacked Jordan's government condemned as a war crime. The U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, says it may soon be forced to suspend all humanitarian operations in Gaza due to lack of fuel. UNRWA's chief said Thursday, quote, I do believe there's a deliberate attempt to strangle our operation. 
An Israeli drone strike on the occupied West Bank overnight killed three Palestinians and injured 14 others. The bombing came as part of a major raid on Jenin and surrounding communities by Israeli soldiers who used armored bulldozers to destroy streets and surrounded four medical sites, including the Ibn Sina Hospital. Dozens of Palestinians were arrested. Since October 7th, Israeli forces have killed more than 200 Palestinians in the West Bank. The head of U.S. forces in the Middle East is in Israel today for talks with senior Israeli officials. Axios reports General Michael Eric Carilla, the commander of U.S. Central Command, is meeting Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and top General Herzi Halevi to discuss Israel's assault on Gaza and fighting along Israel's border with Lebanon. On Thursday, Israel's military shelled villages in southern Lebanon and launched drone strikes after Hezbollah fighters fired anti-tank missiles across the border. It was some of the heaviest cross-border violence since fighting erupted in October. Israeli airstrikes hit several targets around Damascus early on Friday. This follows a series of Israeli strikes across Syria, including attacks that took Damascus and Aleppo airports out of service last month, killing two civilian workers. In California, hundreds of protesters shut down all westbound lanes of the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge for several hours Thursday morning demanding President Biden call for an immediate ceasefire and an end to U.S. military aid to Israel. Police arrested 81 people. The protest came as President Biden met with world leaders in San Francisco at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, or APEC. In Boston, Massachusetts, Jewish peace activists led a sit-in protest Thursday that shut down traffic on the Boston University Bridge. In a social media post, the group If Not Now Boston apologized to anyone stuck in traffic, but added, quote, we have tried everything else. We have called, we have marched, we have sung, we have prayed, we have written letters and visited offices. Yet politicians like President Biden and Senator Elizabeth Warren continue to stonewall, and Israel continues to slaughter innocent Gazans by the thousands, unquote. We'll have more on the protests against Israel's assault on Gaza after headlines when we speak with If Not Now spokesperson Eva Bugwart. Democratic Congress member Becca Balint of Vermont called Thursday for a lasting bilateral ceasefire in Gaza. Balint is the first Jewish American Congress member to call for a ceasefire. In a commentary published Thursday, she wrote, quote, Like me, there are thousands of American Jews that share a deep emotional connection to Israel because of what it meant for the survival of the Jewish people in the face of extermination. This same history also drives so many of us to fight for the protection of Palestinian lives, she wrote. Meanwhile, more than 300 delegates to the 2016 and 2020 Democratic National Convention, who backed Bernie Sanders for president, called on the Vermont senator to introduce a resolution for a ceasefire in Gaza. Sanders has so far rejected a ceasefire and has called only for short pauses to the fighting. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Times has become the first major U.S. newspaper to call for a ceasefire. On Thursday, the paper's editorial board wrote, quote, 
It's become impossible to distinguish between Israel's decidedly non-surgical operation against Hamas militants in Gaza and the indiscriminate killing of Palestinian civilians. When so-called humanitarian pauses in the bombardment and ground operations are too brief to realistically permit innocents to flee— or when there's no place for noncombatants to go that is not also in the line of fire, such pauses are so deficient as to be meaningless, the Los Angeles Times editorial board wrote. In Russia, artist Sasha Skochelenko was found guilty Thursday of spreading so-called false information about the Russian military and sentenced to seven years in prison for replacing supermarket price tags with anti-war messages. The labels featured messages like, the Russian army bombed an art school in Mariupol. Around 400 people were hiding inside, it said. Skochelenko was convicted under new wartime legislation that criminalizes any anti-war messaging or activism. In her closing statement after her year-and-a-half trial, Skochelenko said, quote, How little faith does our prosecutor have in our state and society if he thinks that our statehood and public security can be ruined by five small pieces of paper, she said. This is opposition politician Boris Vishnevsky. This verdict is unfair. There is no guilt because Skochilenko is not guilty of anything. I will not even speak about humanity here or about equality before the law because sometimes people receive fewer years in jail for murder than for five price tags in a shop. It's not justice, it's an execution. In other news from Russia, a former police officer sentenced to 20 years in prison for the 2006 contract killing of Russian journalist Anna Polakovskaya has been pardoned after a military tour in Ukraine. Polakovskaya was best known for reporting Russian abuses in Chechnya, often writing for the now-banned Novaya Gazeta. Another journalist has been killed in Mexico. Ismael Gomez was fatally shot in Ciudad Juarez Thursday while working his second job as a driver. He was a photographer for the newspaper El Heraldo de Juarez, who had worked in media for nearly 20 years. At least three people were arrested in connection with his death. His colleagues are demanding justice. Ismael was a good and honest person. He was a good co-worker whose life was taken away in this way. We don't want his case to remain unsolved, as has happened with the deaths of other journalists. If the cause was something other than his work in journalism, we want this to be clarified by authorities. And if this is related to his journalistic activity, we want authorities to investigate this even further. The Mexican editorial organization, Ismael's family, and the journalistic community demand clarification of the facts. At least four other journalists have been killed this year in Mexico, one of the most dangerous countries for media workers in the world outside a war zone. Violence has skyrocketed in Mexico following the enforcement of the U.S.-backed war on drugs. Over 100 immigrants held at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, have started a hunger strike protesting indefinite detention and other inhumane and dangerous conditions. They're denouncing Immigration and Customs Enforcement for failing to properly handle and resolve immigration cases. The group La Resistencia says at least 25 of the hunger strikers have been placed in isolation. Northwest is run by the for-profit prison corporation Geo Group. 
In Kentucky, a judge declared a mistrial in the federal civil rights trial of the ex-Louisville police officer who fired his gun during the deadly 2020 raid on Breonna Taylor's home. The jury deadlocked over whether to convict Brad Hankinson, who was charged with using excessive force and violating the rights of 26-year-old Breonna Taylor, her partner, and Taylor's next-door neighbors, where some of the officer's stray bullets ended up. Hankison faced a maximum sentence of life in prison. He was acquitted last year on three state counts of endangering Taylor's neighbors. Federal prosecutors will now have to decide whether to hold a retrial. A federal jury in California has found a right-wing conspiracy theorist guilty of attempted kidnapping and assault charges after he invaded the San Francisco home of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last year and attacked her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer. Ahead of the attack, 43-year-old David DePape shared QAnon conspiracy theories and false claims about the 2020 election and the January 6th Capitol insurrection. He faces up to 50 years in prison at a future sentencing hearing. Embattled New York Congress member and serial liar George Santos said Thursday he won't seek re-election after the House Ethics Committee found substantial evidence the freshman Republican committed numerous felony crimes. In their report, House Ethics investigators found Santos, quote, sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. He blatantly stole from his campaign. He deceived donors into providing what they thought were contributions to his campaign, but were in fact, payments for his personal benefit, unquote. United Auto Workers members have approved new contracts with the big three automakers. Among other things, union members will see their pay increase by 25 percent of the course of the deal. Two-thirds of Ford workers vote in favor of the deal, while only about 55 percent of workers at General Motors agreed to ratify their contract. Stellantis appears set to approve the deal at similar margins to Ford. Some more senior employees have objected to the deal, saying pay increases should be higher. Others have expressed disappointment, pension benefits benefits weren't expanded to employees hired after 2007. In related news, Stellantis has offered buyouts to half of its non-unionized U.S. staff as part of a cost-cutting move. And thousands of Starbucks workers held a one-day strike Thursday on Red Cup Day, one of Starbucks' busiest days of the year. Workers say frequent promotional events and giveaways like yesterday's creates extra stress and unmanageable workloads. Organizers say Thursday's walkout was the largest in the coffee chain's history. A historic union drive has swept over Starbucks stores nationwide in the past two years. Over 360 locations are now unionized. This is Edwin Palmasolis, a Starbucks worker in New York. We want to make sure that we have a better um, pay, uh, staffing, scheduling, and we have the right amount of hours to work because they've been improperly staffing us. Uh, and sometimes it just makes it harder for us to work. You know, sometimes we feel like we work for two people instead of one, um, and we're just tired. We're just really tired of overworking ourselves. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's facing increasing pressure to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, but instead, the White House is rushing more arms to Israel. Bloomberg is reporting the U.S. has quietly sent Israel more laser-guided missiles for Apache gunships, as well as new army vehicles, bunker buster munitions and more ammunition. On Wednesday, the United States abstained from a United Nations Security Council vote in support of extended humanitarian pauses in Gaza. Meanwhile, protests are continuing across the United States calling for a ceasefire. 
In California, police arrested at least 81 protesters after they blocked traffic on the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge for several hours. In Boston, protesters shut down the Boston University Bridge. Many of the protests calling for a ceasefire have been organized in part by two Jewish organizations, If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace. On Wednesday, the groups helped organize a protest at the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in Washington, D.C., where House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and other lawmakers were gathered. U.S. Capitol Police violently moved in on the protesters as they held hands to block the entrance to the DNC. Police described the protests as, quote, not peaceful and claimed that protesters pepper sprayed officers. But images from the protest shows it was officers who deployed pepper spray and that officers used force to remove the demonstrators. This is Eva Borgwart, national spokesperson for If Not Now, speaking during the police action. Organizers say 90 people were injured outside the DNC. Capitol Police say six of their officers sustained injuries. One person was arrested. One lawmaker who was inside the DNC, California Congress member Brad Sherman, took to social media to describe the demonstrators as, quote, pro-terrorist, anti-Israel protesters. On Thursday, President Biden called into a DNC meeting to express his appreciation for how law enforcement handled the protest. We're joined right now by that person you just heard, Eva Bargwart, national spokesperson for If Not Now. Thanks so much for joining us from D.C., Eva. Um, if you can start off by calling for—by uh, explaining why you focused on the DNC, and then describe what happened and respond to Congressmember Sherman saying you were pro-terrorist. Mm. Um, well, Amy, thank you so much for having me. And, yes, the focus on the DNC was because, as we know, the majority of Americans and certainly the majority of Democrats want a ceasefire. And our lawmakers are not listening to the thousands of calls um, and constituent meetings that uh, we've been trying to—ways that we've been trying to reach them over the past month. And so this was, like many protests across the country, an act of nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, the goal was to assemble peacefully, call attention to the urgent situation in Gaza, and ask for Democratic leadership to act and call for a ceasefire now, a release of the hostages, a hostage exchange, and a de-escalation, and to address the root causes of this violence, decades of occupation, apartheid, and siege. And unfortunately, police chose to escalate and with no um, verbal warnings or communication with police liaisons who were trying to speak with them, um, they started shoving protesters down the stairs and shoving protesters um, back with their bicycles and trampling on the 11,000 tea lights that protesters had brought to uh, represent the Palestinians who have already been killed in Gaza. And as you mentioned, uh, Democratic lawmakers, including Congressman Brad Sherman, have 
said that the the protest these protesters are pro Hamas. Uh, Speaker Mike Johnson said that this was an anti Semitic protest, which is frankly absurd because. Uh, for many reasons, but primarily so many of the protesters are not only Jews, but who have loved ones who are who were either murdered by Hamas on October 7th um, or Jews and Palestinians who have loved ones either in Gaza or who know people in Gaza who have lost dozens of members of their families over the past month. And so to, to, to say that these Again, many of them personally grieving protesters are pro-terrorist is absurd. Let, um, and it, let's be clear that police escalated this protest. Rather than characterize what Congressmember Brad Sherman said, as I did at the beginning, let's hear what he said on CNN Wednesday night. There are over 200,000 pro-Israel demonstrators with a permit, entirely peaceful. And here you have a demonstration less than one thousandth as large that's also getting publicity and it's getting publicity because uh the their willingness to attack police as they did with pepper spray is a force multiplier so he's contrasting the protest you had in front of the dnc with the pro-israel march uh, that took place a few days ago your response to what he's saying also i know a number of reporters outside were scratching their heads uh when he talked about pro terrorist protesters um yes thanks amy and yes his his words do speak for themselves um i mean first of all let's also be clear that there have been hundreds of thousands of um uh, nonviolent march, st- hundreds of thousands of peace activists, um, Palestinian, Jewish, multiracial, multi-faith, rising up across the U.S. and millions around the world. Um, and so, to contrast uh, Wednesday night's demonstration with the um, only with the Tuesday demonstration, um, uh, the pro-Israel march at the Capitol um, is telling um, because. It's it's impossible for politicians like Brad Sherman, who are refusing to call for a ceasefire, to acknowledge the massive um, peaceful uprising that is happening around the world in support of the people of Gaza, because the public, um, the the international community, uh, sees Palestinian lives and Israeli lives as equal. Eva, um, on Thursday, yesterday. Um Vermont's sole, sen- uh, Vermont's sole Congress member, Becca Balint, became the first Jewish Congress member to call for a ceasefire. That's very interesting because the one of the senators of Vermont, uh, Bernie Sanders, um, has not called for a ceasefire. Um, in fact, if not now, um, protesters have been arrested in his office requesting that he call for a ceasefire. Your response to both Balint and Sanders? Um, yes. Well, and I was also at that protest um, uh, at Senator Sanders' office um, earlier this month. And um, I think in particular for Jewish lawmakers, as a Jewish movement, as the, as the Jewish movements that have been protesting for ceasefire, we are doing this for um, the for safety and freedom for Palestinians who are under siege, and also because 
we are terrified of uh, for our loved ones in Israel and in the entire region if this escalates into a broader regional war. Um, and our disappointment in Senator Sanders so far refraining from calling for a ceasefire is that um, he has made his legacy as an anti-war champion. And um, and so we are extremely grateful to um, uh, Congresswoman Bayland for speaking out from a Jewish perspective for ceasefire, because we feel that our Jewish values uh, and our safety as Jews um, is extremely, extremely contingent on ending this horrific violence and calling for a ceasefire now. And finally, uh, Eva, you were an organizer for President Biden during his 2020 campaign. If you can talk about your response to his position now and what this means um, and what you feel Biden's supporters then are feeling today. Um, yes. So, like you mentioned, I worked for President Biden in Arizona uh, in the 2020 election. Let's be clear. I am terrified of Donald Trump and the white supremacist, anti-Semitic movement that's behind him. And I, I feel immense stake in um, the Democratic Party uh, winning in, uh, in November 2024. And frankly, again, I am deeply uh, um, terrified and angry at um, Democratic leadership for ignoring the calls from the majority of their base for a ceasefire, a hostage exchange, and a de-escalation, um, and uh, creating a lack of faith in the Democratic Party that I am very concerned will hurt Democrats' chances in November. And I encourage them um, with the fullest, fullest emphasis possible to reverse course now. Um, we, are, we have seen so far that for, well, for some Democrats, 1,400 Israeli deaths and over 4,000 um, Palestinian deaths were enough. Um, now, for other Democrats, 11,000 Palestinians in Gaza killed are not enough for them to call for ceasefire, which is how we know this horrific violence will end and move toward a political solution um, in the region. And so we are waiting to see how many Palestinian lives our Democratic politicians need um, in order to call for ceasefire. And every day, every hour that they wait has, I fear, implications for what will happen in November. Finally, I wanted to ask about the powerful lobby group APAC. That's the American Israel Public Affairs Committee stepping up its um, support for primary challengers who to lawmakers um, who voice support for a ceasefire. Slate magazine reports APAC is expected to spend somewhere around a hundred million dollars in Democratic primaries backing opponents of House progressives like the squad. Your response? Yes. So um, if not now is currently uh, prior to October 7th, um, if not now's main focus was um, uh, around the campaign around APAC and making sure that the Jewish public in particular and the American public understand that these days APAC is um, 
th- those $100 million and the, the money that APAC is spending in these elections is primarily from far-right billionaires, um, and that APAC is functioning essentially as a way for um, these Republican billionaires to interfere in Democratic primaries. And in particular, around escalating um, uh, their their spending or threats of spending against those calling for ceasefire. APAC has always been um, a, uh, determined to prevent um, any kind of conditionality on U.S. support for Israel. Um, any human rights conditions in consi- consistent with U.S. law um, and any daylight between the U.S. and Israel. And now, in um, attempting to punish any of the lawmakers who are taking a moral and pragmatic stand um, in calling for ceasefire, they are demonstrating that um, even the genocidal and let's call it genocidal because it is rhetoric from, as you have on this on the show many times, um, rhetoric from the Israeli leaders in the government right now um, is not enough to warrant um, conditionality in U.S. support. Um, and frankly, I am also extremely terrified about the implications um, of uh, punishing politicians for not supporting, um, again, this assault um, on uh, this massacre in Gaza, because if we say if if APAC is determined to tell the American public that supporting an unfolding genocide, that, that speaking out to oppose an unfolding genocide is beyond the pale in the realm of political acceptability, what is going to become of us and what is going to happen to this world? Eva Bargort, I want to thank you so much for being with us, national spokesperson for If Not Now, uh, one of the organizers of Wednesday's protest at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. Coming up, independent journalist Sharif Abdelkadus on the latest in Gaza and the West Bank and his new documentary on the Cop City protests in Atlanta. Stay with us. Palestino Cientos Años, Palestine 100 Years by Diaspora Trio. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to look at Israel's bombardment of Gaza, I want to turn to the words of the British-Palestinian surgeon, Hassan Abusita, describing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. He'd been working in the Al-Ahli Arab Hospital, which was one of the last functioning hospitals in the Gaza Strip. 
yesterday, there was a major airstrike. Over 60 killed on a mosque, and Lahli was completely inundated with uh, um, wounded. And we were operating all through the night, and by the early hours of yesterday morning, we had realized that we have basically run out of um, medication for the anesthetic machines, and we had to stop the operating room. Um, we had finished. Uh, um, and that's when we made the decision. At the same time, in the early hours of the morning, there was heavy bombing all around the hospital, and really close to the hospital. You could feel the whole building being shot. And we were being, and, and it sounded like tank fire, it didn't sound like air raids. Um, and so we made the decision that it was time for at least the operating room staff to be not going to be able to provide the service to evacuate. And so yesterday morning we left um, and we could, you could hear the sounds of the tanks around the hospital when we walked out. And we literally walked all the way to Nusayrat camp in the central zone. When we left, there were over 500 wounded needing urgent medical care, but needing surgical intervention that we could not provide because khalas, I mean, we'd run out of medication. We'd run out. The operating room could, would no, could no longer function. And at the best, there were two operating rooms in it. We were always overwhelmed with the number of wounded compared with what we were able to provide. The British-Palestinian surgeon Qasim Abusita speaking through his surgical mask in Gaza. Um, we've been trying to reach people there, but it's the second straight day of a telecommunications blackout. This is only the latest one. To talk more about Israel's bombardment of Gaza, we're joined now by independent journalist Sharif Abdelkadus, produced the award-winning documentary the Killing of Shreen Abu Akhla for Al Jazeera's documentary series, Fault Lines, and has reported from Gaza for Democracy Now! and other um, uh, outlets. Sharif, it's so important to uh, talk about what's happening there, even as this telecommunications blackout is happening. Also, the leaflets that are being dropped on Khan Yunus, which is where so many thousands of Pal Palestinians have been instructed to go to head south, from northern uh, Gaza south, now leaflets are being dropped there, uh, saying they must move further south. Can you respond to this overall situation? Well, I mean, you have a situation where uh, the northern part of Gaza, north of Wadi Gaza, and, and Gaza City itself, uh, which was home to nearly one million people, uh, is now a hollow shell. Um, most neighborhoods in Gaza City and in northern Gaza in general have been very badly damaged or destroyed. Uh, you have these armored columns of Israeli forces uh, going in and tearing up the roads. Uh, electricity, water, um, sewage infrastructure basically no longer exist. Um, and, you know, there are reports that the, 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 there's the smell of death is everywhere as, as an untold number of bodies are lying under the rubble. 
Um, the UN estimates that about 2,700 people, including 1,500 children, uh, are missing and believed to be buried under the ruins. And there's reports of the people that have remained in the north digging with their bare hands, uh, trying to find their family members, and the streets have been turned into graveyards. Um, so only a fraction of the people who lived in northern Gaza remain there, and most have been forcibly uh, displaced to the south in scenes that are reminiscent of the Nakba. 1.5 million people have been displaced um, in Gaza. That's nearly double the number that were ethnically cleansed in 1948 and were never allowed to return to their homes. And many of these people are people who were displaced in, uh, or their descendants from 1948. So you have to remember that 80% of Palestinians in Gaza are not from Gaza. Uh, they're refugees. Um, so most of the Palestinians in northern Gaza are now packed into the south. Uh, there's no indication if or ever they'll be able to return to the north. Uh, the Israeli military effectively controls m most of the, the northern area. And Gaza, northern Gaza is basically uninhabitable now. You know, it's been destroyed. Um, and there's hardly any aid coming in. Uh, you know, Gaza is now receiving only about 10% of its needed food supplies. Uh, dehydration, malnutrition are growing. Nearly all of the people uh, in Gaza, the 2.3 million people, uh, are uh, in need of food, according to the UN. Uh, and as you mentioned, the communication systems uh, are down now for a second day. And this is a more serious telecommunications blackout because it's the result of no fuel uh, to power uh, the Internet and phone networks. So it may be a more permanent uh, communications blackout. And this communications blackout is actually causing disruptions to the little amount of cross-border aid deliveries that were coming in. Um, and as you mentioned, the Israeli forces now have dropped these leaflets uh, just the other day, telling Palestinians in areas east of Khan uh, Yunis, which is a, you know, a bigger city in the south of Gaza, to evacuate. Where are these people supposed to go? Um, it increasingly seems that uh, you know, Israel's trying to f push Palestinians uh, into Egypt, uh, which is a long-standing colonial fantasy. Um, and, you know, there, there are plans that have been documented uh, for this, that there's a document leaked last month from Israel's intelligence minister uh, that detailed, you know, a durable post-war situation solution for Gaza, which includes the long-term transfer, uh, forcible transfer of Palestinians uh, to northern Sinai. Uh, there's something called the Island Plan, which is named after a retired uh, major general, uh, who outlines a proposal to forcibly transfer Palestinians uh, to Sinai. But right now, yeah, we don't know what the situation is. Egypt has staunchly refused this kind of mass displacement of Palestinians into its territory. Um, and it has tried to negotiate uh, aid to come in. But there's increasing pressure right now on Egypt uh, because... At the end of the day, this is an Egyptian border, the Rafah border crossing. It's the only border crossing into Gaza that is not controlled by Israel. Egypt right now is letting in maybe 50, maybe 80, maybe 100 trucks a day, just a fraction of the amount of aid that used to come into Gaza even before October 7th. And the reason it's only letting in a fraction is, is that it's uh, allowing Israel to dictate the terms. So it gets approval from Israel of how many trucks 
can enter the Rafah border crossing. Those trucks then enter, they go up to an Israeli border crossing where they're checked, they come back down and then enter into Gaza. And there's increasing pressure to, on Egypt from civil society in Egypt, uh, from, from people around the world, for Egypt to just open the border and let the aid in. If Israel wants to bomb UN aid trucks, uh, then, you know, that, that's something else. But right now, Egypt is coordinating with Israel on how much aid gets in. And people are beginning to starve and uh, infectious disease is spreading because of no water. And it's, a, it's an incredible crisis. Sharif, um, the number of journalists who've been killed... Um, I think Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 42 journalists and media workers have been killed since October 7th. It's the deadliest month for journalists since the group began collecting information in 1992. If you can talk about the global response, the global journalist response, and then we'll talk a bit about the latest on Shireen Abu Akhla, who was killed not in Gaza by the Israeli forces, but was killed last year um, outside the Janine refugee camp. Yeah, I mean, what can you say? Um, I don't know what the number is even now. I, you know, it's at least 35, maybe 40 Palestinian journalists have been killed in just over a month. Um, by far the highest number of journalists killed in such a short amount of time. Um, and, you know, journalists, uh, foreign journalists can't get into Gaza. Israel's not letting them in and nor is Egypt. So you have a situation where uh, you're killing most of the journalists, the registered journalists in Gaza. You're not letting other journalists in. And then um, we've seen very problematic coverage from uh, newsrooms, Western newsrooms, uh, of what's happening on the ground, problematic language. And people have been protesting this. And we just saw... Um, uh, you know, people have been resigning from the New York Times. The poetry editor of the New York Times just resigned uh, fr from there, uh, you know, because of the language used by the New York Times uh, in this coverage. But also, uh, you know, you haven't seen the, the type of outcry that one would imagine from the journalistic community for their colleagues who are being killed in Gaza. And the ones that aren't killed in Gaza have lost so much. They've lost their families. They've lost their homes. Um, when uh, Jamal Khashoggi was brutally murdered by the Saudi government, there was massive condemnation uh, from uh, Western news outlets uh, for the murder, and rightly so. When Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who remains in prison uh, in Russia, was arrested, uh, there has been and still remains, remains a massive outcry over his arrest. But we haven't seen this, the same kind of... Uh, outcry over this record number of journalists, that Palestinian journalists that have been killed in Gaza. I think it's, it's deeply, deeply problematic and reveals uh, a bias that, uh, that is, is being laid bare um, in many ways. And as you mentioned, Shirin Abu Akhle, you know, when this all kind of, uh, the, the, the assault on Gaza began on October 7th, we saw people uh, post on, on Twitter, uh, on social media, kind of photos of Shirin and just saying that, kind of wishing that she was around, that she was, you know, alive to report because she was such an incredible journalist and so needed uh, in a time like this. Uh, you know, even the Lebanese journalist uh, who was killed uh, in shelling in, in, uh, in southern Lebanon by Israel, uh, one Abdullah. of his last tweets... Yeah, one of uh, Abdullah, one of his last uh, tweets was a photo of Shirin, and he just wrote Shirin uh, 
with a heart. And then after he was killed, someone put up his photo and said, I saw him with a heart. Uh, so, and yeah, Shadeen, the latest uh, news about the Israeli army bulldozing the memorial for her where she was killed. Right. I mean, as we heard in headlines, you know, Israel has repeatedly uh, conducted very brutal raids on Jenin, uh, on the Jenin refugee camp, um, uh, which is uh, the heart of um, uh, militant Palestinian resistance in uh, the West Bank. Uh, we've seen uh, drone strikes uh, on Jenin uh, just a few days ago. A drone strike killed about uh, 14 Palestinians in Jenin, one of the deadliest days in the West Bank since 2005. Um, and we saw drone strikes just the other day as well and raids on the hospital. Uh, and during one of these uh, raids, uh, they came in. The site where Shadin was shot by an Israeli sniper has become uh, a memorial area. When I went there last year to report on her killing, there's there's photos of her everywhere. There's flowers. Uh, there's um, uh, written pieces of tribute uh, that are all hung up. You, the, the tree where she was killed under, you can still see uh, the bullet holes. And um, it's a place where family and friends have sought some solace by visiting this area and remembering Shirin. And uh, an Israeli bulldozer came in during one of these raids and completely destroyed uh, this road and this area uh, where this memorial was. And it doesn't seem... Well, not, it doesn't. It seems to just be some kind of vindictive act because there was no reason to destroy this road that that leads to the entrance uh, of the Jenin refugee camp. Um, they've also, you know, in an earlier raid, they 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 destroyed this. Um, memorial which was in the shape of a horse which was kind of well known in Jenin in a main roundabout and was built from the pieces of an ambulance that was uh, blown up uh, in an airstrike by Israel in 2002 and it was they used the parts of the destroyed ambulance to to kind of create this horse uh, monument which was a testament to Jenin's spirit of resistance they also came in and kind of removed that uh, so there seems to be also an, an attack on uh, symbols of resistance to to Israel uh, as well. Well, Sharif, um, we're going to ask you to stay with us. We're going to switch gears. Sharif Abdelkadus is a journalist who won the George Polk Award for the documentary The Killing of Shireen Abu Akla for Al Jazeera's Fault Line series. After the break, Sharif will stay with us and we'll be joined by another guest to talk about his new documentary and all the latest developments around Cop City in Atlanta. Back in 20 seconds. You, Gods to Who by Andre 3000. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Atlanta, Georgia, where people from around the country joined in a week of action to stop the massive $90 million police training complex known as Cop City.
throwing tear gas into the crowd. Um, they're throwing munitions. Yeah, that's tear gas. On Monday, police attacked peaceful protesters with tear gas, pepper balls, flashbang grenades as over 400 marched toward the sacred Wilani Forest, the proposed site for Cop City. Participants included the parents of the environmental defender Manuel Esteban Terán, known as Tortuguita, who was fatally shot by Georgia state troopers during a raid on the Stop Cop City protest encampment in January. This comes as activists have been organizing for a citywide referendum on the project, which officials have tied up in court. Meanwhile, 61 people facing RICO or racketeering and domestic terrorism charges appeared in court this month as the state tries to characterize them as militant anarchists. Al Jazeera's Fault Lines recently covered all of this in their report, Now You're a Terrorist, Atlanta's Cop City Crackdown. Sharif Abdelkadu spoke to environmental activist Sarah Wazalewski, one of the dozens charged with domestic terrorism for protesting Cop City. She described the January morning when Georgia law enforcement officers violently raided their protest encampment when state troopers shot and killed Tortuguita. So I was sleeping in a hammock with my partner at the time. We woke up around like eight, maybe quarter till eight in the morning. Sarah Wasileski had traveled from Pittsburgh to Atlanta and joined the protest for the weekend. So we were just laying in bed talking and then all of a sudden we heard and saw just like 15 or so police in full military like combat gear like with AR-15s just like coming through the woods directly at us. We were waiting to be put into a transport vehicle and that's when I heard gunshots. screamed when I heard it and the police officer that like had me also responded like oh shit. like they knew something bad happened while Sarah was being arrested a team of officers killed Tortuguita in a barrage of gunfire Sharif Abdelkadus also spoke to indigenous forest defender Victor Puertas in a video call inside ISIS Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, where Puertas was held for over seven months since his arrest. After being released on bond from DeKalb County Jail, Puertas was immediately taken into custody by ICE. After weeks of negotiations with the detention center, we were able to speak to Victor by video call. Hello. Hi, Victor. This is the first time he's spoken to the media since his arrest. It feels like you're, you're living a completely parallel life, you know? Like, your life is stopped the moment that you got arrested, and now you have to make meaning of all these, you know? And why is this movement so important to you, Victor? I care about the land, I care about the people, I care about life, I care about the water, you know? I, I, I deeply care about those things. I grew up in that way. I was raised in that way. So what do you think it does to a movement when the state labels it as a violent extremist organization and then charges its participants, like you, with domestic terrorism? You know, you don't believe it first, you know? And then you realize, yeah, actually they're like passing these kind of laws, you know? 
to target certain groups of people. What's happening here in, in Georgia, in Atlanta, it will have a repercussion all over the country. For more, we're joined by two guests. Sharif Abdelkadus is still with us, correspondent for this Al Jazeera Fault Lines report. And Kamal Franklin is joining us, founder of the organization Community Movement Builders, who's been part of the now two-year movement to stop Cop City. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Uh, Kamal, for the latest news of this week, over 60 people in court, uh, many of them charged with domestic terrorism. Can you talk about the significance of what this means? Um, as we heard this woman say domestic terrorism and how it affects their whole lives. Yes, thanks for having me. I mean, this this issue goes to the heart of the militarization of the police and the criminalization of movements. What we're witnessing in Atlanta is a rebirth of the COINTELPRO movement to stamp out organizers and activists, to scare people into not speaking up and participating in movements you have people who came to Atlanta who previously were not involved in any cop city activity, but who happened to get rounded up by police. Uh, and the police looked at IDs, and if they had Georgia IDs, they let them go. If they had out-of-state IDs, they arrested them and charged them with domestic terrorism and later added on the charge of RICO. So you have people whose lives have been turned upside down. People who've been engaged in acts, some people who've been engaged in acts of simple civil disobedience by sitting in tents by sitting in tree huts, who now, again, have domestic terrorism charges and RICO charges. And so, as you stated and as, you, as the documentary was saying, people's lives have been turned upside down because of the state's attempt to criminalize and brutalize activists and organizers who are working against police violence in our city. Can you talk about the range of opposition? I mean, it's not just one group. It's people who are deeply concerned about police brutality. It's also religious leaders, indigenous leaders. Talk about the area where it's being built. Yeah, one of the things about this movement has been, since the very beginning, it's been vast in its outreach. Everything from community organizers like myself, environmentalists, uh, religious leaders, uh, voting rights activists— uh, yes, including anarchists, other people uh, who are community members who've been engaged in this because they see two things happening. One is the what we spoke about a, a couple of seconds ago is the continued over-policing of black and brown communities that will be happening if Cop City is built. Two is the, the, the attack against movements, which is the very reason why this vast militarized facility is even being proposed. And then three is the environmental degradation of the Walani Forest, which is going to be ripped apart. Over 300 acres have been rented at $10 a year. 90 acres have already been cut down. Um, this forest has been promised to a working-class adjacent black community for use of park space, for camping space, for, for trails, walking trails. All of those plans were ripped away as soon as they decided to put Cop City in. It's already caused environmental degradation in the neighborhood, and that will continue to happen as they go forth with their plans to try to build Cop City. And what about the referendum? What's happened to it, an Atlanta-wide referendum so people could decide? The city of Atlanta, along with the, the clerk's office, the mayor's office, the city council, have basically sat on this referendum. Uh, they've done nothing to move this forward, even though the organizers who did this, we collected over 116,000 signatures. The city council and the clerk's office could have started verifying these signatures as soon as we turned them in, but they decided to halt that process and to not do it. 
Further, the city council on its own could put a referendum on the ballot without even considering the signatures. And again, they have failed the city of Atlanta. They failed the people in Atlanta by allowing the people to decide. People, again, over 116,000 signatures of people saying that they want to vote on this. They want a voice on this. But the city has ignored it because it prefers to do backroom deals with corporations and with the Atlanta Police Foundation and with the police themselves and the state government. You have here a a, a right wing white Republican uh, state apparatus teaming up with a so-called liberal, moderate, uh, Democratic black mayor apparatus. And the things that they agree upon most is how to protect cops and capitalism. And that's what's happening right now. Uh, and a referendum is being put on ice so that they can't be voted upon by the people in Atlanta. Sharif, you spoke to Belkis Turan, the mother of the forest defender Manuela Esteban Paez Turan, known as Tortuguita, who was killed by Georgia police in January. Uh, Belkis traveled to Georgia from Panama, where she lives. And we can just play a short clip. I really don't believe anything what they say. I think they are lying. And there is nothing new. Everybody knows that police lie. The county medical examiner didn't find any gunshot residue on Tortuguita's hands. And an independent autopsy suggests that Tortuguita was shot while seated with hands raised. Manuel really was pacifist. He disliked the police very much, but not to kill anybody or to try to kill anybody. Manuel's life and message is to save the world, to save the green areas, to take care of the oceans. Sharif, um, one of the first people we hear in your Fault Lines documentary, Now You're a Terrorist, is the mother of Tortuguita, uh, Belkis Teran. Uh, your overall take from covering issues all over the world, from going down to Atlanta and seeing what um, people were confronting here and now what they're being charged with. I mean, that's not to say Tortuguita, who was killed. Right. Well, I think what's important to note about the movement to stop Cop City and defend the Atlanta forest is its resilience. Um, you know, it's brought together, as you mentioned, abolitionists, uh, environmentalists, indigenous rights leaders, religious leaders, a multifaceted resistance movement uh, against this massive plant police training center. That's, and the movement's lasted well over two years now. It's still going, despite this um, uh, massive amount of state repression against it. And what we try and document in the, in the documentary is um, that many of these—there's there's a crackdown on, on, on even lawful political activities. And lawyers say this is unprecedented, uh, that it's basically criminalizing uh, political association. The indictment, where 61 people are charged in this wide-ranging racketeering case, the ACLU uh, called the theory in the indictment shocking and unprecedented. Um, and it basically relies on people's beliefs and community organizing uh, as the basis for the sweeping criminal liability. And just finally, 
finally, as we're talking internationally too, there were, you know, there's protests by the Stop Cop City movements in support of Palestine as well, and against what's called the Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange, or GILI, where uh, law enforcement officers from Atlanta, from across the state and the U.S., traveled to Israel to receive training from Israeli uh, police forces. Um, and, uh, you know, Israel has long taken these strategies and techniques that are honed on the Palestinian body and then exported them abroad. And so we see these ties uh, between, uh, between Israel and uh, police forces in Atlanta. Sharif Abdel-Kudus, uh, he is the reporter on Now You're a Terrorist, the Fault Lines documentary. You can watch it online. And Kamau Franklin of Community Movement Builders.